Back in 2010, I went to my hometown to see a dying friend named Michael. Michael had liver cancer, secondary to long-term AIDS, probably. And it wasn't clear during phone conversations with Michael leading up to my coming home to see him, it wasn't clear for a while what his prognosis was. At first, I wasn't entirely sure what kind of cancer he had. He was a little bit cagey about it. And then it turned out he had liver cancer. And I knew what the statistics were on liver cancer. That's that's not a cancer that you come back from. I don't recall off the top of my head, but it's somewhere around, I don't know, 5 to 10% of people who have a survival rate of, of five years or longer. So I knew that, that Michael wasn't going to live long. But the disturbing part, aside from the fact that my friend was dying, was how nobody else around him seemed to know that he wasn't going to be living very long. So his husband, Tim, they're both deceased now. His husband, Tim, reacted to Michael's terminal illness by being in denial, not, not an uncommon response. He basically housewifed about it. Bought new things for the house, trying to make the house more comfortable for Michael, talking about when he was going to be better, uh, when he'd be home from the hospital. Um, you know, very much talking as if there were a long future out there for the both of them. Well, I got home to my hometown, and I met an 85-pound skeleton that's what Michael had become. He was in a lot of pain, obviously. He was still at home, but he was going in and out of the hospital because he'd have attacks of, of one sort or another that couldn't be dealt with at home. And while I was there, Tim and I were trying to figure out, do we get a hospital bed downstairs? How do we rearrange the furniture? We didn't want him to have to die in the hospital because nobody really wants to die there. And although hospice facilities are an option, Michael wanted to be at home. So we got the hospital bed. We rearranged the furniture. We cleared things out so that he could get easily from one part of the, the house to another. He couldn't really walk unassisted, but he insisted on doing so. And the thing about people when, when, when they die is that it's messier than, than you think, and, and not just physically. It's messier emotionally. This was the first time that I had, I had been actively caring for somebody or helping in the care for somebody who was going to die within the foreseeable future. Not that I hadn't seen people in this state before I had, but this was a, a close friend. And Michael was absolutely in psychological torment. He was uh, feeling miserable. He was angry at the world. I can't blame him for any of these things. He was only 57 years old. Um, but he was, and I'm not blaming him, but he was impossible, impossibly unpleasant and angry to deal with. You could not have, I didn't have that good goodbye conversation with him, couldn't have it with Tim. Um, everything was a problem. Why is my house like this? This is fucking up my furniture. 
this place looks like a goddamn hospital. I might as well be in the hospital. Nothing, nothing was okay. And yeah, I will admit that in the moment, uh, after a few days of this, even though he was dying, it was difficult enough that I got a little snappish. It's really hard to be grieving somebody who's also grieving himself and, and grieving the loss of other people, but also um, lashing out and being miserable and accusatory toward people who really did want to make his last days more comfortable and wanted to show love. Anyway, that's not the point of this story. The point of this story is Michael didn't want hospice care in the house, but he couldn't take care of himself. I had to hold him. I had to hold him up physically for him to walk up the stairs and go to the bathroom. I had to hold him up while he shaved and washed, and I was happy to do that. This is what you do for people when they need you to do it. But he couldn't be alone, and Tim couldn't not work all the time, and Michael didn't want a hospice nurse coming in. So it was this impossible situation. He insisted on staying at home, and the first night we were there at 2 in the morning, um, he was downstairs on the couch uh, trying to sleep. Um, I had gotten a chair next to the couch and put some pillows on it so that I could I just didn't want him to be alone, so I decided I'd sleep or nap next to him, be there, you know, if he needed something. And two in the morning, he starts vomiting black blood. And that's what happens with some kinds of cancers. Um, You have internal bleeding, and it all comes up, and it's black, and it's all over the place, and it's miserable. It's miserable for him, miserable for everybody else. It's very painful. Uh, We couldn't. We couldn't clean him up. We couldn't get it to stop, so we had to call an ambulance. And he ended up back in the hospital where he did not want to be. And the doctor, let's see, I must have been doing something else. And I got back to the hospital, and um, Michael's family was there, and Tim's family was there. And as I walked into the hallway, into the ward, the doctor was coming out of Michael's room to the gathered family members to give them an update on his condition. And remember, 85-pound skeleton, liver cancer, okay? So remember that. This is not something you come back from. The doctor said, well, you know, we did X, we did Y, and he'll be home, uh, he'll be home in a couple of days. And this was all delivered in the very same tone of voice with the very same kind of language that you would deliver, ah, well, we're going to discharge little Timmy. He's almost done with his respiratory virus. He'll be home in a few days. It was surreal. The doctor could not admit that Michael was dying. (laughs) I did not say this out loud, but yes, all of these things do go through my head silently 24 hours a day. I'm always thinking of things like this. But he says he'll be home in a few days, and I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm sorry, funeral home. We were looking for funeral home. So sorry, Doc, you're out this round. He's not leaving this place in anything but a hearse, okay? I'm the kind of person, I don't like ambiguity, but I also don't like lying. I don't like people pretending that bad things aren't happening when bad things are happening, For me, that makes the bad thing infinitely worse. The gaslighting or the the collective lying to each other and to ourselves 
makes me insane. I cannot deal with it. It doesn't make death easier. It doesn't make emergencies easier. For me, it makes them harder because it, it makes it impossible to talk truthfully with people who are involved in the emergency with you. You can't be candid with them. You can't ask them to do things that they need to do because if you ask them to do them, they're going to know that you're asking them to do them because we're preparing for a death and they can't handle that. It's, it, was, it was a very frustrating situation. And Michael spent two or three days in the hospital, and I was with him as as his as were many of his family um i, I was treated as a nephew uh which is sort of the relationship that i had with him and with tim uh so i i was treated as family and i could come and go as i pleased and i appreciated that because i i wasn't actually kin to him um i wish i could tell you that we had good conversations at his bedside and reminisced and talked about important things but we only had a little bit of that. Um, he did say to me on the last day, Josh, you know that I'm dying, right? And I said, yes, I do know. And I'm very sorry. And that was it. The rest of it was either staring into space or crying in pain. And the pain got worse. And after the experience with the doctor's who would not acknowledge that this was a death watch. I brought the nurses aside, and the nurses, I've complained about nurses before because <laughs> there's a lot to complain about, especially over the past three years when you look at how they've behaved. But both personally when I've been in the hospital and when I have dealt with nurses taking care of family members who are seriously ill or dying, I've had very good experiences with them. These were good women who understood, it seemed to me, much more the reality of the situation than the doctors did. They were the ones who were providing the care. They knew the family members. They knew me by name. I'm very, very thankful for them. They did everything they could to make this as acceptable as it could possibly be for Michael and for his family. And I took them aside, and I don't remember specifically what I said to them, but I had a conversation that, that many families have had quietly with nurses and doctors. And that conversation was about morphine. And I said, I know that I'm not his kin. I know that I can't make medical decisions for him. I know that you can't take directions from me. And you may not even be able to react to what I say to you. I understand all of this. But I just want to tell you from my point of view, we can all see how much pain Michael is in. We all know that he is dying. We know that there is no treatment and no cure. He's past that point. But he is suffering tremendously. He can't even sleep. And I said, if I were in a position where I could give orders or ask you to do something, what I would ask you to do is to push as much goddamn morphine on him as necessary to keep him comfortable, even if that means he stays unconscious and even if that means he dies. And they couldn't react directly to me, but I can tell you from being in the situation that they understood what I was saying and the nonverbal communication was an assent. I believe that they agreed with what, with what I was saying. And I went home with Tim, and I got up the next morning at 8.30, and Tim told me that the hospital had called a little while ago and Michael had died. Now, 
did morphine kill him? Did I help kill him? Did the nurses kill him? Do we want to call it hastening death instead of killing? I don't know the answer. Yeah, I kind of do. Yeah. Yeah. The morphine helped him die quicker than he would have otherwise. So if that qualifies for did it kill him, then yes, it killed him. And yes, I sleep morally at night, even though I said that, and even though my conversation may have hastened his death. I don't have any guilt over that. Because there wasn't any point to continue to continuing the suffering. It wasn't a suffering that was going to teach a lesson to Michael. It wasn't a suffering that he was going to look back on because it wasn't going to look back on anything. He was going to be dead. But those questions are still there. And I want to talk about assisted suicide because this has been in the news It's a conversation I've been involved with for many years because owing to my job uh, that's coming to an end, I've worked for an organization called Funeral Consumers Alliance that is basically the consumer reports of the funeral industry. It's a nonprofit organization that advises families on how to shop for funerals, how to arrange them, cemetery services, without getting ripped off, without falling prey to deceptive sales practices or emotional pressure that can cause families to overspend and bankrupt themselves while they're in grief. So our constituency, the people who volunteer for the organization, are often involved with things like hospice nursing. Um, The sentiment of the constituency in the organization, I would say a vast majority of people are in favor of doctor-assisted suicide. Um, They genuinely believe this. They believe that it's a human right. They believe that it's an act of compassion. Um, And this was a position that I held for a very long time. I don't hold that position anymore, at least uncomplicatedly. Um, I am not for physician-assisted suicide any longer, and I came to that decision about two years ago. I saw the issue the way many people who shared my point of view have seen the issue, which was one of personal autonomy, personal dignity, having the right to end one's suffering. And recently, I wrote about the concept of suffering in a Substack post because it's a conversation that I've had with my therapist for many years now. And one of the things he told me, and he's right about this, is that my relationship to the concept of suffering is distorted. And he believes that most people in the West right now have a distorted relationship with the concept of suffering. What does that mean? So he, I'll paraphrase him. He would say to me, You, Josh, want to swoop in and end the suffering right away. When you see somebody suffering, you want to end it. And you want to do so without thinking about whether or not that's the right thing to do, whether or not suffering has any meaning or any value. You just want to end the suffering. And he's right about that. That is my reflexive emotional response to the kind of suffering in other people that that tugs at my heart. I'm not sure that this would have applied in Michael's situation because I do think that that was an example of absolutely pointless suffering. There was no lesson to be learned from that. It was merely a man who had two days left to live. Why should he live it in excruciating pain? But I take, 
I take the point about other kinds of suffering. And this point becomes clear when we take a look at what the country of Canada has been doing regarding assisted suicide. You may have heard about their program. They give it a nice little acronym, MADE, M-A-I-D, Medical Aid in Dying. You see the euphemism treadmill, don't you? When this issue first started to be talked about in the United States and Canada well over 10 years ago when efforts really ramped up to bring what is what are often called death with dignity laws. We watched it go from physician-assisted suicide, then people realized, oh no, we can't use the word suicide because because it's suicide, it'll make people think of suicide. And this this isn't, even though it's killing yourself, it's not suicide, it's not suicide. Uh, no bad connotations, only happy, happy, happy. So we had to move to assistance in dying. And we had to talk about death with dignity. I'm surprised that, I'm surprised <laughs> that still has any currency because the death word is also verboten. Well, let me read to you a little bit from an article from the Associated Press. This is from August, but there have been developments since then. Canada's institutional approach to physician-assisted suicide, which I'm going to continue to use, and I will not listen to anyone who says I'm using an outdated term. I'm not here to satisfy the current generation's branding mania. I like to speak explicitly. From the AP. Next year... Canada is set to allow people to be killed exclusively for mental health reasons. It is also considering extending euthanasia to, quote, mature minors, children under 18, who meet the same requirements as adults. Well, before we even get to that, I got a little bit out of order here. There was an article recently about a 23-year-old man in Canada. It was on Substack. I looked and looked and looked because I wanted to point you to it, but I could not find it again. Somebody will probably know it. I'm sure many of you listening have actually read this article. It was a really good one. It did, a long-form article describing a 23-year-old guy with diabetes, and I, and I believe either vision or hearing loss or some consequence of diabetes, wanted to kill himself, didn't want to continue life anymore. Well, he got in touch with the MAID people, medical assistance in dying, and was scheduled for an execution. Yeah, an execution. When his mother found this out, she was horrified. And she contacted the medical institution. I don't remember the name of it. And of course, because the man is not a minor, 23 years old, um, his mother doesn't have any legal right to direct his medical care, and um, nobody would listen to her. Until finally, she made a big enough stink that the original medical care facility or institution that had scheduled this man's execution, his, his assisted dying, unscheduled it. I think because they were afraid of the publicity. And they they should be, right? You should be afraid that people are going to ask questions about a 23-year-old man with diabetes and another health problem that is not terminal, 
saying, I'm so miserable, I want to end my life. Ten years ago, somebody like that saying, I want to kill myself, we'd consider that a suicide threat rather than, well, what do we, what do we consider it now? An informed choice about directing his medical care and when he departs this earth? <laughs> but we don't react that way now, do we? It's just normal. It's normal in Canada. So let's go back to the AP article. So now Canada is considering allowing people to get help to die simply because of mental health reasons. So the very things that drive people to suicide that we run suicide campaign, suicide prevention campaigns about to educate people about reaching out to help someone in this position. Now, all of a sudden, that's been reversed. Notice the reversal. Where do we find reversals? We find them in cluster B dynamics. We find them in pathological dynamics where people are lying, right? Here's an example. Quote, Alan Nichols had a history of depression and other medical issues, but none were life-threatening. When the 61-year-old Canadian was hospitalized in June 2019 over fears that he might be suicidal, he asked his brother to, quote, bust him out as soon as possible. Within a month, Nichols submitted a request to be euthanized, and he was killed, despite concerns raised by his family and a nurse practitioner. I'm moving, it's, this is me moving away from the article for a second. Remarkable to me. This is the Associated Press, which has been captured by woke and euphemism as much as any other mainstream media. I'm impressed but surprised that they that they actually included the phrase and he was killed. It's I mean it's truthful but it's so direct I can't even believe the AP allowed it. So again, within a month Nichols submitted a request to be euthanized and he was killed despite concerns raised by his family and a nurse practitioner. His application for euthanasia listed only one health condition as the reason for his request to die, hearing loss. Nichols's family reported the case to the police and to health authorities, arguing that he lacked the capacity to understand the process and was not suffering unbearably among the requirements for euthanasia. They say he was not taking needed medication, he wasn't using the cochlear implant that helped him to hear, and that hospital staffers improperly helped him request euthanasia. Well, hearing loss now, huh? You know, I remember 15 or 20 years ago when I was first introduced to the work of philosopher Peter Singer, American philosopher Peter Singer, who has a really radical philosophy and has argued among other things. And I'm not going to be able to do his work justice. Um, I don't mean to caricature it. I think it's really troubling. But I think there are also very interesting aspects of it that are that can't be, you can't just hit them with a hammer. They require more subtlety. So, you know, this is not, don't take this as the final word on Peter Singer. <clears throat> but... Peter Singer made arguments about uh, how, how little quality of life is little enough that we consider it a life not worth living. And disability advocates were very upset, continue to be very upset with Singer because in their mind they believe that what he is saying is that people who are disabled don't have lives worth living. And they believe that his, his 
foregrounding of this kind of discussion makes it more dangerous and sort of softens up society to see disabled people as not worth helping, but really as fodder for a killing assembly line. So, so that's the controversy around that. When I first became aware of the disability activists who were objecting to Peter Singer and arguments like him, I scoffed at them. I thought they were ridiculous. I thought they were being self-centered. I thought they were inappropriately projecting their personal situation onto other people who, who weren't disabled but who were in extraordinary pain that could not be remedied, who had a rational reason to want to kill themselves, and that it really did everyone a disservice to claim that this is about genocide. It's about eugenics. It's about getting rid of the disabled. And I still think there was some hyperbole there, but not all of it. I should not have scoffed completely the way I did because they were right in part. They were right. And this is one of the reasons why I no longer support legal physician-assisted suicide. And I guess, and I'm thinking to myself, well, do I support the right to kill yourself? Which is a stupid question. Um, because if somebody's going to kill themselves, they ha- they're going to kill themselves whether, you know, whether we support their right to do it or not. Um, so it really is a moot question. But let me give you some examples. I-, I do believe now, I do believe now that we cannot trust doctors, nurses, bioethicists, people who call themselves bioethicists. We cannot trust them any longer. They have shown their true colors during the so-called pandemic, where people were placed on ventilators and killed by ventilators, even after they knew that it was probably the ventilators killing them. These were people who advocated for locking down entire cities and populations so that nobody would get a respiratory virus. These were people like bioethicist Arthur Kaplan, who finds himself all over the uh, news in the U.S., joking about how And this is a paraphrase. It's not a direct quote, but joking about how people who refuse to take the vaccine really have given up their right to be cared about. And, you know, who cares if they die, you know, or maybe they should be punished. So I don't trust these people. I don't trust their motives anymore. Uh, So, yeah, what I'm saying is I am willing to make this harder. I don't I will not support assisted physician assisted suicide laws. I will do nothing to make this easier for doctors to do, nothing to give them legal liability cover because I think it's simply too dangerous. If you are in a situation, you or a family member, where you have a terminal illness and unbearable suffering is coming along and you want to do something about it, I understand that. I may well do that myself if I find myself in this situation. Yes. Like I said, I'm not sorry that I had that conversation with the nurses about Michael's condition, but I'm afraid we're all going to have to do that for ourselves. This is going to have to be a family and friends thing that we organize quietly. We cannot allow the state into it, and we certainly can't allow medical professionals. Listen Listen to the lack of safeguards in Canadian euthanasia law, again from the AP article. In Canada, the two options are referred to as medical assistance in dying, though more than 99% of such deaths are euthanasia. There were more than 10,000 deaths by euthanasia last year, an increase of about a third from the previous year. The resulting 2016 Canadian law legalized both euthanasia and assisted suicide for people over aged 18, provided they met certain conditions. 
They had to have a serious condition, disease, or disability that was in an advanced, irreversible state of decline. And, excuse me, they needed to be enduring, quote, unbearable physical or mental suffering that cannot be relieved under conditions that patients consider acceptable, end quote. Their death also had to be, quote, reasonably foreseeable. And the request for euthanasia had to be approved by at least two physicians. The law was later amended to allow people who are not terminally ill to choose death, significantly broadening the number of eligible people. Critics say that change removed a key safeguard aimed at protecting people with potentially years or decades of life left. More. Canada does not have review boards or monthly commissions to review these requests like other countries do. Canada does not allow family members to request a review of these requests. How convenient, huh? They, you can't review it before they do it and you can't investigate it afterwards. Oh, gee, I'm sure that, that won't cause any problems at all, will it? And Canadian patients are not required to have exhausted all treatment alternatives before they seek euthanasia, as is the case in Belgium and the Netherlands. And in Belgium, I don't know about the Netherlands, but in Belgium, doctors aren't even allowed to mention this to patients because they fear correctly that this will be a loophole that doctors of a certain character will use to push people toward killing themselves. A little bit more from this article from the AP. Quote, Alan Nichols lost his hearing after brain surgery at age 12 and suffered a stroke in recent years, but he lived mostly on his own. He needed some help from us, but he was not so disabled that he qualified for euthanasia, said his brother Gary Nichols. In one of the assessments filed by a nurse practitioner before Nichols was killed, she noted his history of seizures, frailty, and, quote, a failure to thrive. She also wrote that Nichols had hearing and vision loss. The Nichols family were horrified that his death appeared to be approved based partly on Alan's hearing loss and other concerns about how Alan was euthanized. They lodged complaints with the British Columbia agency that regulates doctors and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police asking for criminal charges. They also wrote to Canada's Minister of Justice, quote, somebody needs to take responsibility so that it never happens to another family, said Trish Nichols, Gary's wife. I am terrified of my husband or another relative being put in the hospital and somehow getting these euthanasia forms into their hands. The hospital says Alan Nichols made a valid request for euthanasia and that in line with patient privacy, it was not obligated to inform relatives or include them in treatment discussions. The provincial regulatory authority told the family it could not proceed without a police investigation. In March, Royal Canadian Mounted Police Corporal Patrick Maisonneuve emailed the relatives to say he'd reviewed the documentation and concluded Alan Nichols, quote, met the criteria for euthanasia. And one more. We'll, we'll wrap this up with one more example. Roger Foley, who has a degenerative brain disorder and is hospitalized in London, Ontario, was so alarmed by staffers mentioning euthanasia that he began secretly recording some of their conversations. In one recording obtained by the Associated Press, the hospital's director of ethics told Foley that for him to remain in the hospital, it would cost, quote, north of $1,500 a day, end quote. Foley replied that mentioning fees felt like coercion and asked what plan there was for his long-term care. Quote, Roger, this is not my show, 
the ethicist responded. My piece of this was to talk to you to see if you had an interest in assisted dying, end quote. Roger Foley said he never previously mentioned euthanasia. The hospital says there's no prohibition on staff raising the issue. We're just asking questions. Okay, that's going to bring us to the end of this one, this episode of Disaffected. I am interested in what you think about this. And because this is an audio-only podcast, you're not going to find it on YouTube, and you can't really leave a comment under it because that's not how podcast software works. So... If you'd like to tell me what you think about this, either about the issue generally, what you think about uh, what Michael's family and I decided to do when he was dying or anything like that, I would really like to hear it. Send me an email to us at disaffected.fm. That's us at disaffected.fm. And if you happen to be listening to this and you have not hit the subscribe button on your podcast app, please do. The more actual subscribers we have rather than just one-offs who hit it once and, and just listen to it, the better our numbers, the more attractive we'll be to advertisers, and the more other people find us. Thanks very much. I'll talk to you next time.